0: I'm a uh, real fan, I have to confess, of these TV uh, blooper shows. I didn't say that because this just reminded me of that or anything. But but as you've probably seen these, uh, an hour-long show in which the uh, embarrassing moments of various uh, celebrities are aired for the entire nation to see, the uh, outtakes from television shows and movies where they slip or trip or Flood their lines or in various other ways look like total fools. And I was uh, struck the last time I watched one of these programs that the way these outtakes were described as, uh, they were described as scenes which were never intended for public viewing. In other words, they were moments of embarrassment that never were intended to come to the attention of the public. And, uh... It occurred to me that there are a lot of things about us that each of us individually have which fall under that category. Things that we do not want to be viewed publicly. Uh, uh, Embarrassing things about us, humiliating experiences in our past, shameful things that we have done uh, that we would just assume nobody ever uh, found out about. And they're embarrassing to us when they come up in conversation or, or surface. A couple of weeks ago, David shared his uh, most embarrassing moment, and I thought it was only fair that I share with you mine. It happened when I was real little, probably six or seven years old, and every uh, summer my parents would pack me off to this camp called Mount Elam, which uh, was the world's dustiest uh, Christian summer camp, not a blade of grass anywhere that I ever could find. But at any rate, the first time they shipped me off to this, I was probably six or seven years old, I think, or something like that. And uh, when I was real young, I was a baby, my mom used to rock me to sleep, and I got to where I liked that. And when I was two or something, she quit doing it. But I liked it so much that I figured out a way to rock myself to sleep in my crib or in my bed. So I'd thrash around for a while, and then I would finally go to sleep. Well, by the time I went off to Mount Elam, I was still doing that. And uh, so I realized I could be in a bit of trouble. So we get into our bunkhouse. There's 14 of us all in bunk beds in this one room. And so the cabin lights went out, and I snuggled down in my sleeping bag, and I tried to be as discreet as I could about it, but I was still going to rock myself to sleep. And I noticed after a couple of minutes of this that the room was real quiet. (laughs) And I opened my eyes, and I could see through the sleeping bag cover the flashlight lights of every guy in the room trained right on my bunk. So I peeked my head out, and sure enough, every day I had his flashlight turned right on my bunk. And the counselor said, what in the world are you doing in there? Well, I wasn't about to say I'm rocking myself to sleep. So the only thing, only thing I could think of to say on the spot was that I'm wiggling. So from that point on, my nickname was Wiggles. So for the rest of the week, it was Wiggles this, Wiggles that. Well, that was something I just wanted people to forget about as soon as it happened. Well, the next year, my parents shipped me back to the same camp, and I thought, surely, that my past is behind me. And I wasn't on site for five minutes before somebody hollered out across the campsite, and full hearing of everybody in the camp, hey, Wiggles. So, for once again, for another year, I was uh, Wiggles instead of Brian. Now, all of us have things like that in our past that we can laugh about now, but there are other things about us that are far more painful uh, that have to do with either our present or our past that are, really are humiliating and embarrassing to us and which we, uh, which we want to conceal uh, from others. got a phone call this week from a very close friend of mine who was a psychology major in college and is now teaching at a Christian high school in California, and he teaches psychology. It's one of the subjects he teaches. And uh, last year, uh, last fall, things got so bad in his own personal life that he felt the need to sign up for professional uh, counseling. Went in for uh, therapy and has gone each week to see a professional counselor about his own personal problems. And as you might expect, this is very uh, embarrassing to him. And a very humiliating thing to be true about him. In fact, he had a, a great deal of difficulty even admitting it to me on the phone a very close friend. And he told me in the course of our conversation that very, very few people even know about this. And uh, we may have things like that about us that uh, are painful for us to admit and to talk about. Well, I think in this passage that we want to look at today in Second Corinthians, Paul tells us how to view these things. These embarrassing, uh, humiliating, shameful things that all of us have, these skeletons that all of us are packing around in our, our closets. I want to start in chapter 11, verse 30, and go through verse 10 of chapter 12 to give you a very brief outline of the way this passage breaks down. In chapter 11, verses 30 to 33, Paul tells us what he brags about, and that is his weakness. Then in verses 1 through 6, he tells us what he refuses to boast about, and those are his strengths. And then in verses 7 through 10 of chapter 12, he tells us why he boasts about his weaknesses. Let's begin in verse 30. If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. Paul says, that is, if I am backed into a corner where I am forced to brag, that is, where I am forced to talk about myself... The first thing that I will talk about are my weaknesses. Uh, The moments in my life when I was powerless and helpless and incompetent and my inadequacy was, was clearly revealed. Now, you recognize immediately how contrary to natural impulses is, that our natural impulse is to gloss over or cover up our weaknesses, our deficiencies, and make sure that people find out about our strengths. Our assets, and all of us become experts at slipping little details into conversations that make us look good. Uh, Fascinating little tidbits about what we've done or accomplished uh, in the past that we want other people to know about. And the deficiencies, the shortcomings, those we try to conceal and cover up. But Paul says, if I have to talk about myself, the first thing I would bring to your attention would be my weaknesses. Then he takes an oath in verse 31, The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. Well, why does Paul immediately take an oath? Well, I think it's because what he says in verse 30 is so odd and so uh, bizarre and so unusual that the normal response of anybody who took that seriously would be to say, Come on, Paul, you've got to be kidding. Nobody boasts about their failures about the weaknesses. And Paul takes an oath in the name of God himself that I am telling you the truth. I am not lying to you when I tell you that the proudest moments of my life were the moments of my total helplessness and weakness, that the proudest moments of my life were my moments of humiliation uh, and embarrassment. Now, before he goes on to uh, tell us what those things are, he first of all gives us an example of an an embarrassing moment in verses 32 and 33. But let me make one more comment about verse 31. Uh, I think another reason that Paul takes this oath is that he he doesn't want us to think that this is just false modesty on his part. Uh, All of us have run into people who have told us in a very pious tone of voice that I'm only serving the Lord in my humble little way. And you know immediately you're talking to the proudest person in uh, driving distance. And Paul wants us to know that it's not some kind of game he's playing with us. It's not some kind of pretend modesty or or false modesty. Perhaps you, as a husband, have come to the place at some point in your life where you have realized that in your marriage you've been an insensitive clod. You've read one too many Dobson books or gone to one too many Dobson rallies and the truth sunk in. And so you sit your wife down one night and say, uh, Honey, I just want you to know that I've come to realize that I really have been an insensitive clod. And you're pretty proud of yourself for making this admission until your wife agrees with you. And uh, then all of a sudden the defensiveness stems right back up, doesn't it? Well, Paul says, I want you to know this isn't anything like that. When I admit to this, brag about this, I really mean it. And I don't care who agrees with me about this. And then he gives us an example of an embarrassing, humiliating moment. In Damascus, the ethnarch under Aretas the king was guarding the city of the Damascenes in order to seize me. And I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall, and so escaped his hands. Now David talked about this event two weeks ago, as you remember. This was Paul's first missionary campaign. He had gone to Damascus originally, you remember, in order to put Christians in prison. He went as a persecutor. And on the way to Damascus, uh, Jesus intervened, appeared to him, uh, convinced Paul of who he was, and Paul then became a disciple of Jesus. And when he finally reached Damascus, he came not to imprison Christians, but to proclaim Christ. And he went filled with a sense of expectation and optimism about how he would... uh, Uh, convince these Jews uh, of the reality of Jesus as the Messiah. And he anticipated, I think, a brush fire of evangelism and conversions to sweep through the Jewish community in Damascus. And flushed with the sense of self-importance and self-confidence, he uh, began to proclaim Christ immediately upon arrival in Damascus. And things went so badly, just like a grenade going off in his face, that he eventually had to flee town uh, under cover of darkness uh in order to escape but uh, with his life and slunk off into the, the desert night uh a total failure in his first uh attempt at holding a revival crusade and Paul says this is the fir- if I'm going to have to talk about one of my crusades this is the first one I'm going to talk about this is the one I want you to know about the one that was a total a zero in which I was a was a hopeless failure Now, you can't help but contrast this with the sort of prayer letters that we monthly get from evangelists. Uh, If you're on any mailing lists of any evangelist, you know that the characteristic tone of a prayer letter is a statistical record of the number of churches involved, the number of people who attend, the number of pastors who were involved in training, the number of counselors who received training, and the number of people who made decisions for uh, Christ. And there are filled with these kind of glowing statistics. Well, Paul had those kind of campaigns in his life as well. He had moments where entire cities and provinces were were capsized for the gospel. And yet Paul says, if I have to talk about a crusade of mine, the one I want to talk about the most is this first one, which was a total and abject failure. Now, before he tells us why it is that he boasts about something like this, he goes on in chapter 12 to tell us what he does not brag about. Boasting is necessary, in verse 1, though it is not profitable. But I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise, and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. On behalf of such a man will I boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast except in regard to my weaknesses. For if I do wish to boast, I shall not be foolish, for I shall be speaking the truth. But I refrain from this so that no one may credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. The first uh, word that Paul says here is that boasting in these, these particular circumstances was necessary. That because the purity of the gospel was at stake and because the spiritual welfare of the Corinthians was at stake, Paul felt compelled by the attacks of his accusers in Corinth to boast about himself, to talk about himself. It was necessary. But there's a considerable degree of reluctance in this. All the way through this section from chapters 10 to 13, you discover that Paul is is very reluctant. There's a halting tone about his conversation in this section because uh, he felt very awkward talking about himself and listing for the Corinthians his own credentials. And that is because Paul recognized, as he said repeatedly in this section, is that boasting uh, is a very foolish thing for a Christian to do, and it's a mark of spiritual immaturity. Uh, that one of the evidences of of, mature, of immaturity in a believer is this desire to impress others with with ourselves and to talk about ourselves and promote ourselves and, and seek to raise the, the view that other people have of us by our own efforts. Uh, because Paul realized this was a mark of immaturity, that a mark of maturity in a believer is a reluctance to, to talk about himself, a reluctance to brag about himself and to list for others his accomplishments and achievements. And yet Paul uh, felt compelled to do it. But he says there's no profit in it. It's not profitable. There's no benefit uh, in this this kind of activity. That Paul knew that once men, once ministers of the gospel, begin to boast about themselves and list for their people their credentials and so forth, the focus of the people shifts. It shifts from the Lord to the man himself. And Paul knew there was no profit in people becoming followers of men, that the only profit in life came from being a follower of the Lord. So he recognized the lack of profit in this and only resorted to it because he was compelled to by his opponents. Now he goes on to talk about something that people normally would would brag about, normally would boast about. And it's a, a revelation that he says a man in Christ had 14 years ago. Now immediately we want to answer the question, who is this man who had this vision, this revelation of the Lord and was caught up to the third heaven? Well, I believe it was Paul himself, and I think it because of what he says in verse 7, if you look ahead just for a moment. He says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, the revelations he's just talked about in verses 1 through 6, for this reason to keep me from exalting myself, and then so on and so forth. So I believe it's clear that Paul himself was the man who was caught up to the third heaven and had a vision of the Lord, that is, he saw the Lord himself and received revelations of new truth from the Lord himself. Well then, why does Paul talk about this in the third person? Well, I think it's because Paul is is so committed to not bragging about this incident, not boasting about it, not seeking to capitalize on it, That he talks about it as if it happened to someone else. That Paul wants to distance himself from this incident because he's so eager not to make uh, capital off of this experience. And so he talks about it in the third person. Now Paul says this happened to him when he was in Christ in verse 2. So he was a Christian. This was after his conversion experience that this took place. And he dates it for us 14 years ago, he says. Uh, this letter was probably written in about 56 A.D., so this would date this vision, this revelation, in about 42 A.D. Now, Paul probably became a Christian around uh, 35 A.D., within a couple of years of the crucifixion. And in the first, it took him three years to uh, complete his understanding of the gospel and then to make hash of his evangelistic campaigns in Damascus and Jerusalem and get shipped off to Tarsus. So by 37 A.D. or so, he was probably back home in Tarsus licking his wounds. And he doesn't reappear on the biblical stage until about nine years later when Barnabas goes and retrieves him from Tarsus and brings him to Antioch. So from 37 to 46 A.D., Paul, from what we know, was was uh, inactive. He was on the shelf. He was back home uh, learning to grow to maturity before the Lord again entrusted him with significant responsibility. Well, this... Revelation. this vision took place then during that so-called silent period of Paul's life. Now, Paul says he didn't know whether he was in the body or out of the body when this took place. It's been fashionable in recent years for people to talk about their out-of-the-body experiences. Books have been written on this subject where people who are near death will experience the sensation of their souls rising out of their bodies and hovering over the emergency apparatus while the doctors and the nurses uh, labor to uh, revive them. And they're aware that whatever is happening to them is happening apart from their bodies. They're watching their bodies being worked on. But Paul says this experience was so absorbing, so captivating, so (laughs) gripping, that he didn't even know whether he was in his body or not. He was so absorbed with the experience uh, itself, so he didn't know but it does suggest that uh, it's possible for um, our bodies to be in one place and our spirits or our minds in another which reminds me very much of a typical Sunday morning service (laughs) now Paul goes on to say that in this experience he was lifted up or snatched up it's a term which implies sort of a violent uh, seizure emphasizing that Paul was a passive participant in this he was snatched up, he says, caught up to the third heaven. Now, by the third heaven, Paul is not referring here, as our LDS friends think, to a terrestrial, celestial, uh, and celestial kingdom, but is either referring to the innermost recesses of heaven, that is, the deepest part of heaven, the holy of holies of heaven, or more probably, as I think, he is using the Jewish conception of the heavens, where the first heaven in the Jewish mind uh, was the, what we would call the atmosphere, uh, the region of the clouds. The second heaven for the Jew uh, was the distant stars, what we would call space or outer space. And the third heaven in the Jewish mindset was the place where God himself dwelt, that it was beyond space and time altogether, outside the realm of space and time into the spiritual kingdom the very place where God lived. And I think that's what Paul means by being taken up to the third heaven. The synonym he uses for it in verse 4 is paradise, another way of describing heaven itself, the place where God dwells. And so Paul tells us that he was lifted up to the third heaven and received a vision of Jesus himself. He saw Jesus himself and received a revelation from the lips of Christ. He says he heard inexpressible words. Now, by inexpressible words, in verse 4, I believe Paul means by that words not that he could not understand or could not speak, but words, as he goes on to explain, he was not permitted to speak, was not allowed to speak. In other words, he understood the revelation he received, but Jesus gave him strict instructions not to pass this on uh, to anyone, Now, it's fascinating to me to speculate on what uh, God might have talked to him about. In fact, one of the things I plan on doing when I see Paul is take him out for a cup of coffee and find out exactly uh, what went on at this time. Uh, but Paul says, I wasn't permitted to pass this information along. And that's intriguing, by the way, because it lets us know that there are whole vistas of truth which will uh, one day be opened up uh, to us. And so our thirst for knowledge and information will... Uh, I will never be quenched, but continue to be satisfied, I think, beyond the time when we when we meet the Lord. But Paul says these were inexpressible words. Now, Paul says, if I had to boast, in verse 5, if I were the boasting type, this is the kind of thing that I would talk about. This is the kind of thing I would brag about. Now, you can imagine the sort of capital that Paul could make out of this sort of thing, particularly when he was under strict instructions not to tell anybody what he'd heard. He could, he could stand up before a church and say, you know... God told me things that he won't even let me tell you. Nah, 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 nah. And uh, make great capital out of this, you know. He'd be invited to appear on Good Morning Roman Empire and talk about this. um, So Paul says, if I were the bragging type, this is just the sort of thing I would talk about. And he says, if I did, uh, in verse 6, I wouldn't be foolish because I would be speaking the truth. In other words, I didn't make this up. There's no exaggeration involved. I'm not embellishing any of the details. This actually uh, happened to me. Uh, our, one of our contemporary philosophers, Andy, uh, Don Meredith, is fond of saying that, that if it's so, it ain't bragging. And Paul says, well, everything I would say about myself would be true, but it would still be bragging. In other words, you can say things about yourself that are the gospel truth, And yet, if it's designed to draw attention to yourself, to exalt you in the eyes of others, then it's boasting whether or not it's true. So Paul says, he goes on to tell us that he refrains from this. He says, I refrain from boasting about this experience. Now, again, I can't help but being struck by the contrast between the way Paul handled this vision and this revelation and the way that uh, contemporary Christians handle the same sort of experiences. It's striking to me that this was a secret that Paul held on to for 14 years. For 14 years, nobody knew that this had happened to him. Uh, And in this circumstance, it had to be dragged out of him. Were it not for the opposition he encountered in Corinth, Paul never would have breathed a word about this uh, to anyone. A few years ago, there was a prominent uh, television evangelist whose uh, empire was in a state of advanced uh, decay, was this close from completely going belly up, and uh, conveniently enough, he had a vision in which a 900-foot Jesus appeared to him and spoke to him, and immediately, this evangelist went national with this information, you know, put it in his next prayer letter, went on his television show and talked about it at some length, uh, held press conferences to announce uh, the details. Uh, Just in the Boise area a few years ago, you remember, there was a pastor who... uh, claimed to have been taken up into the very throne room of God and uh, spoke with God himself. And similar to Paul, he claimed was told things he was not permitted to divulge to others. And he immediately went public with this information and wrote a book about it, which went right to the top of the bestseller list. But Paul says, here's something that happened to me, and it was the truth, but I refrained from talking about this and only talk about it now because I am forced to do so. And I think he tells us in verse 6 why it is. He says, I refrain from this in verse 6, so that no one may credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. That is, Paul knew that people were naive enough to believe almost anything they hear of this type. And Paul said, uh, and Paul is putting his finger here on the very problem with visions and revelations of this type, and that is that they're impossible to verify. Paul says you simply have to take my word for it. There's no way to authenticate this, to double check uh, my experience. And so Paul says, for that reason I I refuse to use this to establish my credibility because I want you only to base your evaluation of me on what you yourselves can see in me and on what you hear from me, the nature of my message, so that your evaluation of me is performed by what you yourselves can observe about my character about my conduct, about my message, uh, about my uh, ministry. And I think, by the way, this ought to be uh, uh, something that we use in evaluating uh, TV preachers, for example. If they uh, seek to establish their credibility or expect us to follow them or listen to them on the basis of anything that we have to take their word for, and Paul says we need to to take a close uh, second look, Because I want your opinion of me as a minister of the gospel to be formed by the things which you can see, which authenticate me and validate me as a minister of the gospel. The apostolic motto was, What you see is what you get. Now, Paul tells us in verses 7 through 10 why it is that he boasts about his weakness, why he chooses to brag about the things that people normally cover up. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of christ may dwell in me therefore i am well content with weaknesses with insults with distresses with persecutions with difficulties for christ's sake for when i am weak then i am strong what paul is saying here is that god recognized that the greatest temptation in paul's life and this is the greatest danger for any christian is the temptation to spiritual pride to become impressed with ourselves and to become flushed with a sense of self-importance and pride and arrogance and conceit. It's the greatest danger any of us can face. I remember a couple of years ago attending a fundraising luncheon here in town um, where a man came to uh, representing one of the major Christian organizations, and a very good one, too and he was appearing as a representative of this uh, organization to launch a fundraising drive. I was invited to this luncheon along with a number of other men, and I was uh, struck by the fact that this individual spent the first ten minutes of his talk listing for us his degrees and his credentials, his accomplishments, the awards that he had received, the positions of power and influence that he had held, the presidents with whom he'd had conversations and so forth, obviously uh, out of the desire to impress us with, uh, with who he was. And I found out later that he had even turned down an, uh, an invitation from the host of this luncheon to introduce him. he evidently felt he was the only one that could adequately do justice to, uh, to his uh, own achievements and accomplishments. And I was not surprised at all to find that in a matter of months this organization had, had to uh, had to let him go. His own pride, his own self-exaltation had disqualified him from ministry. Now, Paul recognized that that was his greatest weakness, and God knew it too. And so what Paul says is God had arranged for Paul to have this thorn in his flesh in order to keep him from exalting himself. Now, I'm sure that you want to know what this thorn in the flesh was. Well, I do too. If you uh, find out, please uh, let me know. Scholars have debated about this for uh, centuries. But whatever it was, Paul can describe it as a thorn in the flesh. The word that's translated thorn here was a word that originally described a sharp pointed wooden stake, the type that you would use in gardening or something like that. And then it came to refer to a splinter, a little wooden splinter or a thorn. Now, my own feeling is that Paul is thinking more of the splinter analogy here. This was a splinter in his flesh. All of us at one time or another have gotten splinters embedded in our our bodies. And Paul thinks of this as something which was like a splinter embedded under his fingernail that he couldn't get at and couldn't remove, couldn't extract. And he calls it a messenger of Satan also, that Paul recognized that God had given Satan a certain amount of freedom in Paul's life, just as God did with Job that God had set certain parameters around Satan's activity. In other words, he'd set limits around what he would permit Satan to do, but he gave Satan a certain amount of license to buffet Paul, as the term he uses. And the word buffet here literally means to strike with the fist. So Paul says, what God had done in, in my life is he's given Satan certain liberties, a certain license to periodically work me over in order to keep me from exalting myself. And that, he says twice, was the purpose for this, that the reason God arranged for this thorn in Paul's flesh, the reason he gave Satan this freedom, is that he was committed to keeping Paul from exalting himself. He was committed to keeping Paul from being filled with a sense of his own importance and his own uh, sufficiency. Anytime Paul was tempted to get puffed up, impressed with himself, God would cut loose this messenger of Satan who would come in and rough him up a bit and remind Paul of his own uh, weakness. Anytime the balloon of his pride became inflated, his messenger of Satan would come along and just pop that balloon. Something that Paul could think about every time he was intended to get impressed with himself and it would bring him right back to earth again, remind him of his own humility. Now, as I said, we really don't know what this was. Uh, Chris Riddell told me last week that one of the books in his library lists 23 different possibilities that scholars have defended. And I thought I would just briefly trace through with you uh, some of the ones that I think are more likely than the others. It's possible some scholars think that this was malaria. There were no medications for that disease in Paul's day. You know, when Jim and Dave and I went down to South America, we went laden with various prescriptions and medications and pills which were designed to uh, counter any of the tropical diseases we might run into. Well, Paul had nothing like that and if he contracted malaria on one of his uh, missionary journeys it could have been a lifelong malady which would debilitate him at, at critical times in his ministry. Some scholars think it was epilepsy, that he may have struggled uh, with a lifelong, uh, uh, lifelong epileptic seizures. Again, we have medication in our day to control this, but Paul would have no medication if this was true. You can imagine how humiliating and embarrassing it would be for him to have a seizure at at the worst possible time. Some people think it might have been migraine headaches, which were so severe that they incapacitated him for a period of time. I have a good friend who, for two or three years, suffered from severe headaches, and she would be physically incapacitated for 18 to 36 hours at a time. Again, humiliating and very inconvenient for Paul if this was true. Some people think it were the nature of his persecutions, the constant pressure and the harassing and the abuse that he took because of his stand for the gospel may have been it. And he describes some of these things in verse 10, so that if the persecutions were not part of his thorn in the flesh, they certainly were just like it in their constant reminder of his own frailty and and weakness. Some people suggest it may have been some kind of eye trouble, uh, cataracts or myopia, or some kind of disfiguring uh, eye disease. Paul in Galatians uh, describes the Galatians as those who would have plucked out their very eyes for him, as if to replace his own diseased eyes. And later in the letter, he describes uh, that. He says, see with what large letters I am writing to you in my own hand. I had a a vision-impaired student in one of my classes this year. When he would hand in his papers, they were written with very large letters because of his eyesight. Uh, in Acts 23, you may remember this account where Paul appears before the Sanhedrin and calls the uh, high priest a whitewashed wall. Uh, it doesn't strike me as particularly, I can think of a lot better things to call people than that. But at any rate, a guard standing nearby struck Paul on the mouth and said, How dare you speak that way to the high priest? Paul immediately apologized and said, I didn't realize I was talking to the high priest. Well, the only way he could miss that is if his eyesight was so poor he just couldn't see. So this kind of eye disease may have been the thing that troubled him all of his life. Some people suggest it may have been a speech impediment uh, based on some of the clues in this letter, where he he admits that his own speech is contemptible. He may have stuttered, stammered. Again, a lifelong embarrassment for someone in his kind of ministry. Others think he may have struggled with depression, that he might have, by his temperament and personality, been subject to severe bouts of depression and uh, a tendency to get deeply discouraged at times. Others think it may have been some sort of spiritual temptation that he was able by God's grace to control but never could eliminate from his life. It's interesting in Romans 7 that Paul says the commandment that tripped him up as a believer was the commandment that said, Thou shalt not covet And the word covet literally means uh, lust, lust for anything, but it's used for sexual lust. And it's possible that Paul may have had, as a single man, most of his adult life, he lived as a single man, it's possible that he may have constantly battled temptation in this area of his life and managed to control it by God's grace, but nevertheless had to continually face it and encounter it. But whatever it was, I think maybe in God's providence, he doesn't uh, tell us, so that whatever our own particular thorn in the flesh is, we can immediately identify with Paul's experience in this area. For myself, I tend to think it was some sort of internal struggle, battle with depression or with temptation that plagued Paul all of his life. Now he tells us that three times he entreated the Lord to remove this from him, just as the Lord three times in the garden pleaded with God to have the cup pass from him. So Paul pleaded with God intensely that this problem be removed from his life, this weakness. And yet every time the answer came back from God, no, I'm going to leave it right where it is, embedded uh, in your flesh. When Jim uh, and I uh, were down in Suriname, Jim Crumley and I, we went on a hunting trip, as we mentioned earlier, and picked up some nasty thorns in the jungle on this hunting trip. And when we came back, we had to extract these. And Jim had one particularly nasty one embedded in some part of his anatomy and We were sitting around uh, the camp and talking about this, and Jim finally said, Well, I've asked the Lord three times to take this out, but he's not going to do it, so I guess I'm going to have to dig it out myself. I came across a notice uh, posted about a found pet, and this is the way the notice read. Found tabby kitten with white paws and bib. Very affectionate. Answers to the name go away. (laughs) And uh, that's how Paul described this thorn in the flesh. It's something that, uh, despite his best efforts to control, simply would not go away, but was a perpetual reminder of his own weakness and frailty. Now, maybe you have something like that in your life, something which is a perpetual reminder to you of your own inadequacy and weakness. Perhaps you have a failed marriage or two in your past. Uh, which reminds you of your weakness. It's a failure in your past. Perhaps a battle of alcoholism or drug dependency. I know that uh, alcoholics are told always to describe themselves and to see themselves not as recovered alcoholics, but as recovering alcoholics, a perpetual reminder of weakness. Perhaps it's some crippling or frustrating physical condition or disease. Perhaps there's a business failure or a personal bankruptcy in your past, which is a painful, humiliating reminder of weakness. Maybe some irrational fear that you struggle with, agoraphobia or some other kind of phobia that, despite your best efforts to get counseling and prayer and so forth, continues to plague you and trouble you. Maybe some personality quirk or trait which is constantly getting you into trouble. One of our elders told me uh, between services that his uh, thorn in the flesh is attached firmly to the back of his uh, throat. He says, it's my tongue. He says, that's my thorn in the flesh. (laughs) Or perhaps for you, uh, it's uh, some kind of temptation or weakness, something that you constantly have to be on your guard because you are so weak that you can at a moment's notice stumble, lust or self-control or anger or impatience or something of this nature. But whatever it is, From what Paul says here, I would suggest to you that God has left it in your life for a purpose, for a reason, because he knows how proud, how arrogant, how self-righteous we would be were it not for this area of life that we can continually think of any time we tend to get impressed with ourselves. So Paul says the first reason that I can thank God for my weaknesses, for my deficiencies, is that they are the very things that keep me humble, they keep me from exalting myself. Now the second great reason he goes on to say why he is thankful for these weaknesses is that they remind him of the great truth that his own weakness was the secret to strength in life. Paul says, these things remind me that the, remind me of this great truth that the key, the secret to adequacy, to strength, to power in life is to be convinced of my own weakness, my own inadequacy, my own insufficiency. And Paul says this weakness, this thorn in the flesh, does that repeatedly for me. It reminds me of how weak and helpless helpless I am on my own. And it reminds me to constantly and exclusively depend upon the power of Christ at work within me. Paul tells us what the Lord taught him in verse 9. The Lord said to him, My grace is sufficient for you, that it is adequate for you. It is everything that you need for life. For my power is perfected in weakness. In other words, these, these things taught Paul that the power of God, his capability for life is released, it's perfected, it, it finds its consummation in the midst of our own human weakness. It says, I will boast about my weaknesses in order that the power of Christ himself may dwell within me, that Christ and his power and his sufficiency may take up residence within me, And he can impart his power and his life to me. And then he sums it up in verse 10 when he says that what I've learned out of this is that when I am weak, then I am strong. That Paul learned the lesson about life that we are never stronger, never more sufficient, more adequate for the demands of life than when we are the most convinced of our own weakness and our own insufficiency. And our own helplessness. This is one of the great paradoxes of the Christian life. Now, the converse is also true. It is paradoxically true that when we are the strongest, when we feel the most strong and the most capable, then is when we are the most vulnerable and the most, uh, and, and in reality, the weakest. One of our growth group leaders was telling us last week in our study that uh, he recently he was up for a test which was uh, designed to determine whether he would be eligible for a promotion in his profession or not. And he went into this test, uh, uh, it was a personnel situation he was supposed to handle. He went into this uh, convinced that he knew exactly how to handle this, feel that he had what it took to handle this circumstance. He was capable, he was ready for, for this challenge. And uh, by his own admission, he he went in and and totally botched the thing up, did exactly the reverse of what they were looking for. And so his chances for promotion have been delayed a bit. And he shared with us, this is one of the things that he learned, is that when he was strong, when he felt confident and self-confident, he was in reality vulnerable. I had this experience in my past where I have prepared for a teaching thing and felt that I had everything together and and uh, felt very confident in my material and uh, didn't really feel like I needed to trust God. I would never admit that, but I went in trusting in my own notes and preparation. And there was no impact, it was evident, no impact, no power in it, all sizzle and, and no stake. Because Paul says, when we feel strong, then we are in reality weak. heard a basketball player once who described himself, he was a skinny basketball player, and the way he described himself was that strength, he says, is my biggest weakness. And that's exactly true in the spiritual kingdom, that strength, our own strength, is our biggest weakness, our biggest liability. But our own weakness, our own sense of inadequacy, is our biggest asset, our greatest strength. This is what writers mean when they talk about the exchanged life, that what happens in the Christian life is that we exchange our weakness, our helplessness for the strength and adequacy of Christ were filled with his power in those moments when we feel weak. A good friend of mine who's in the ministry said that the two great ironies in his life, that he is in the ministry despite the fact that he is by nature both shy and timid. In other words, by nature, if left to himself, he would withdraw from people and be a recluse and spend time by himself. But because he's in the ministry, he's constantly forced day in and day out to relate to people. And he says, by nature, he's very timid, not bold at all. And yet the demands of the ministry require him constantly to take steps of courage and boldness to confront people with sin, for example, and other courageous things. Now, all of the people that know this man are convinced that he does both of these things exceptionally well. And I'm convinced it's because he's learned the lesson that when he's weak, he's strong. And he has exchanged his own shyness and his own timidity for the compassion, the love, and the courage of Christ himself, and has in reality become quite strong in those areas. A friend of mine told me once that he had struggled all of his life with feelings of inadequacy, and he had gone to many people to try to remedy this, talked to seminary professors, and the council invariably was the same. What they would do with this individual is they would begin to list for him his strengths and say to him, you really don't need to feel this way about yourself because... You do have weaknesses, sure, but you have corresponding assets, corresponding strengths, and you should dwell on those. But he confessed that that never really solved the problem, never really quite compensated. And one day he talked to an older, wiser pastor type. He complained about these feelings of inadequacy. And what this individual said to him is, you should get down on your knees and thank God for that feeling, that fear and that feeling of inadequacy. Because that is the secret to your success in life and, and in the ministry. If we understand this principle, then we can do anything that God asks us to do by his strength. Now, our feelings, I want to remind you, are deceptive in this area. Our feelings are the mirror reverse of what reality is. As I said moments ago, that when we feel strong, we are in reality the weakest and the most vulnerable. But on the contrary, when we feel weak, we are in reality strong if we are depending upon the power of Christ at work in us. But I would hasten to tell you that you will still feel weak. You will be strong, but you will feel weak. Some people think that the victorious Christian life is just sort of skating along above our circumstances without being affected or impacted by them. But that's not the case at all. In our weakness, when we turn to Christ, we're sustained by him, and yet we feel convinced of our own weakness. We feel helpless at the very time he is sustaining us and strengthening us. I came across an article written by an authoress by the name of <coughs> Hannah Whitehall-Smith. She described a visit she had to a physical therapy room where a room full of children were uh, engaged in physical therapy. She noticed these crippled children struggling with the simplest physical exercises. But she observed one difference. One little girl, however, I noticed, who made perfect movements. Not a jar or a break disturbed the harmony of her exercises. And the reason was not that she had more strength than the others, but that she had no strength at all. She could not so much as close her hands over the dumbbells, nor lift her arms, and the master had to stand behind her and do it all. She yielded up her members as instruments to him, And his strength was made perfect in her weakness. She did nothing but yield herself up utterly into his hands, and he did it all. The yielding was her part. The responsibility was all his. The question was not of her capacity, but of his. Her weakness was her greatest strength. And that's true for us, that our weakness is our greatest strength when we exchange our own feeling of, inadequacy for his power at work in us.